This podcast is supported by Locum Story. If you're considering Locum tenants, you probably have a question or two or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com is packed with unbiased information from physicians like you. You can find locum trends for your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. All at locumstory.com. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My dear cardioners, this is Amit Goyal. Join us on a new adventure as we journey through the maze of clinical practice guidelines. In this series, Decipher the Guidelines, we will take a deep dive into the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines, focusing on similarities and differences from the American Guidelines. This is a multidisciplinary collaboration between the CardiNerds, the ACC Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease Section, the National Lipid Association, and the Preventive Cardiovascular Nurse Association, developed with a mentorship from Dr. Eugene Yang. And remember, CardiNerds is a fellow-founded, independent educational platform. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Do be a nerd and spread the word on social media and help others find us by rating and reviewing the show on your favorite podcast platform. And hey, hope you're enjoying the intro music custom mix for CardiNerds by student doctor Hirsch Elhens, a.k.a. DJ Elhens, medical student at USC and CardiNerds Academy intern of House Thomas. And with that, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to section 3.2 of the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines. The question is asked by student doctor Hirsch Elhens, answered first by soon-to-be Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Fellow, Dr. Theodora Donison, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Eugene Yang. Dr. Eugene Yang is professor of medicine at the University of Washington and the chair of the ACC Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease section. Thanks, Dan. Theo, so I would love your help thinking through a patient vignette. The patient I'm talking about is a 45-year-old woman with a past medical history of hypertension, overweight status, hyperlipidemia, and an active tobacco use disorder. Her BMI is 27, blood pressure is 150 over 75, Hemoglobin A1C is 5.8, total cholesterol is 234, HDL is 59, and LDL is 155. She's from Romania, a country with a very high CBD risk. Which of the following statements is correct? A. LDLC needs to be decreased by at least 50%, as small absolute LDLC reductions would not provide clinical benefit. So, Hirsch, option A is actually incorrect. The SCORE2 risk chart for populations at very high cardiovascular risk places her at 14%, which is a very high 10-year risk for myocardial infarction, stroke, or cardiovascular death. She would derive benefit even from incremental reductions in LDL-C values. The absolute benefit of lowering her LDL depends on both the absolute risk of cardiovascular disease and the absolute reduction in LDL. So even a small absolute reduction in LDL may be beneficial in high or very high-risk patients. Furthermore, the reduction in cardiovascular risk is proportional to the decrease in LDL, irrespective of the medication used to achieve such a change. This remains true even when lowering the LDL values to less than 55 milligrams per deciliter. Awesome. Thanks, Tio. For the next statement, uh, hypertension is not an important CBD risk factor in our patient as she is young. Well, Hirsch, this option is incorrect because hypertension is a major cause of cardiovascular disease regardless of age 
and the risk of death from either coronary artery disease or stroke increases linearly from blood pressure levels as low as 90 millimeters uh, mercury systolic and 75 millimeters mercury diastolic upwards. Particularly relevant for our patient, a lifetime blood pressure evolution differs in women compared to men, potentially resulting in an increased cardiovascular risk at lower blood pressure thresholds for women. Got it. Thanks, Tio. If you could help me with the next one, that would be great as well. Prediabetes is not a significant CV risk factor for our patient as she is not yet diabetic. This is a very good point to make. Option C is actually incorrect. Type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and prediabetes are all independent risk factors for cardiovascular disease, and it can double the cardiovascular disease risk. Of note, it would be important to address this risk factor with our patient because women who develop type 2 diabetes have a particularly high risk for stroke. Got it. The next statement is smoking confers a higher CVD risk for women than for men. This is actually the correct answer for this question. Prolonged smoking increases the cardiovascular disease risk more in women than in men. Our patient is 45 years old. Cardiovascular disease risk in smokers who are younger than 50 years old is five times higher than in non-smokers. Of note, smoking is responsible for 50% of all avoidable deaths in smokers and a lifetime smoker will lose 10 years of life on average. Secondhand smoke and smokeless tobacco can also increase the cardiovascular disease risk. Thanks, Joe. I did not realize that smoking increases the risk of CBD in women more so than in men. And to round it out for our last statement, her weight does not increase her CBD risk as she is overweight rather than obese. We already know that this option is incorrect. All-cause mortality is lowest at a BMI of 20 to 25 in apparently healthy patients. Even overweight patients are adding an increased cardiovascular disease risk. There is a linear relationship between BMI and mortality in non-smokers and a J-shaped relationship in ever-smokers. In patients with heart failure, a lower mortality risk has been observed with higher BMI, the obesity paradox, so to speak. It would be important to evaluate the waist circumference in our patient as both BMI and waist circumference are associated with cardiovascular disease risk. Hirsch, I just wanted to make sure you are aware of the main point of this question. The main cardiovascular risk factors are hyperlipidemia, which means an elevated apolipoprotein B-containing lipoproteins, of which LDL cholesterol is most abundant. It also includes hypertension, cigarette smoking, diabetes, and adiposity. Identifying patients who will benefit most from cardiovascular risk factor treatment is central to the cardiovascular disease prevention efforts. In general, the higher the absolute cardiovascular disease risk, the higher the absolute benefit of risk factor treatment, and thus, the lower the number needed to treat to prevent one cardiovascular event during a period of time. Dr. Yang, what are your thoughts regarding risk factor assessment in women as opposed to men, both with regards to traditional and sex-specific risk factors? Thank you, Teo. I think there are a couple of important points to make. First of all, as alluded to in one of the questions and answers about high blood pressure, we know now that women maybe need blood pressure targets that might be lower than men, although, as you know, all guidelines do not have sex-specific recommendations for blood pressure, even though there have now been some studies showing that perhaps that a lower target or threshold might be more important for women than in men because of the higher risk, as you pointed out. So that's one thing. 
I think the other things that are unique to women are looking at pregnancy-related hypertension or hypertension-related disorders that occur during pregnancy, such as preeclampsia. And we know that women who have a history of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy have about a twofold higher risk of cardiovascular events. So both the U.S. as well as the European guidelines do talk about this as a potential risk enhancer or risk modifier. And so when we think about that, if women have a history of that, it should be incorporated into our decision-making about a comprehensive risk assessment. To go a little bit away from what we just talked about, I think one of the unique things about the European guidelines is that they stratify patients' risk based on the overall cardiovascular morbidity and mortality in individual countries and place them into low, moderate, high, or very high-risk countries based on data that comes from national registries, which allow them to be classified into these different categories. In Romania, for example, it's considered a very high-risk country, whereas a country like Norway is considered a low-risk country. So we want to ask, why are these countries different and why do they not think necessarily about specific ethnic groups or racial groups? And it's dictated really by the fact that Romania is 90% Romanian and 7% Hungarian. They have very little representation of other races like Blacks, Asians, or Hispanics and Latinx communities. And therefore, those types of recommendations that are specific to race don't really apply. Additionally, why is Romania a high-risk country? Well, if we look at the rates of smoking in Romania, about 26% of people in Romania were smokers in 2018, whereas in the United States, we're about half of that, with 14% of the adult population smoking. So that perhaps reflects why Romania might be a very high-risk country compared to other countries. Uh, So those are some of the nuances about how the European guidelines first stratify based on the overall risk to the individual populations within those countries, and then applying the risk factors such as LDL cholesterol, high blood pressure, smoking status, and why this patient is considered very high risk based on the 14% risk over 10 years based on the clinical guidelines. Thanks, Dr. Yang and, and Teo, for this really wonderful discussion about risk factors. And in particular, I didn't realize that the European guidelines stratify risk based on country of origin. That was super interesting. I actually appreciate the reminder for us to always include the obstetric history when discussing with our female patients. That's something I frequently forget. Yeah, I'll add one more comment that I I think is important also is that both the U.S. and the European guidelines I mentioned earlier, there are some nuances around risk calculation. And so one of the things that the European guidelines do acknowledge is that when there's immigration to countries from outside of those individual countries, let's say England or Sweden or Romania, that we know that there are differences in cardiovascular risk. And for example, if patients are immigrating from Southern Asia, so if they're from Pakistan, for example, then you would use the risk calculator to calculate the percentage and then a multiplier. So for Pakistanis, that multiplier would be a 1.7 and the risk multiplier for Indians would be 1.3. And we know there are lower risk populations uh, like Chinese and Black Africans where the multiplier would be 0.7. So that way you get a much better sense of cardiovascular risk based on ethnicity. So that is emphasized in the European guidelines as a strategy. The US guidelines also consider using what's called the Q-Risk-3 scoring system which incorporates some of these multipliers that we just talked about. Thank you so much for discussing these resources with us for whenever we see patients who immigrate from different places, different parts of the world. 